Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. On this show, we explore the topic of compounding from various angles, including through interviews with public and private company executives, investors who focus on compounders, and newer investment firms that are building a business they hope will become more valuable over time. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of SNN or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The host and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. Today's episode is another in our series of interviews with emerging investment managers where we discuss how to build an investment firm that can compound. My guest on this show is Aaron Wasserman, a partner at Third Period Capital. After a long and successful tenure at Barron Capital, in 2019, Aaron started Third Period, a long-only global growth firm based in Los Angeles. Aaron believes he has cultivated an edge in identifying and owning companies with exceptional cultures, and he has engaged Wharton professor and best-selling author Adam Grant to help widen his competitive advantage. In this discussion, we covered how to analyze company cultures and determine if they are additive to growth, what Aaron learned from working with Ron Barron for many years, what Adam Grant's involvement brings to third period and to Aaron's process, some examples of prototypical Aaron stocks, and the sectors that Aaron has chosen to focus this strategy on. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Aaron Wasserman of Third Period Capital. So before reading some of your materials, I tried unsuccessfully to figure out the obvious sports investing parallel that is embedded in the name Third Period Capital. But can you explain why you decided to name the firm that and what you want the brand to stand for? Sure. Uh, thank you for the great question. And thank you for having me on. Um, so third period capital is a hockey reference. So I'm originally from Minnesota, um, grew up on a one of, I guess, one of 10,000 lakes and um, hockey player since I could walk. Um, in a game, my dad, who went to every practice and game of mine, would sit in the stands and he would hold up three fingers that would, to me, signify, of course, the start of it would signal the start of, of the third period, which really meant um, to keep pushing to, uh, you know, when everyone is tired and maybe even relying upon the earlier performance of the prior two periods, it would be a signal to focus and to sort of summon the mental toughness that you would need in order to really finish the game out strong. Um, and as I've thought about sort of the core values of what I want third period to embody, I think about that hunger um, to grow and to learn, uh, the importance of being humble to understand what uh, what is currently happening in the world and what can eventually be for our companies. And then of course, to be kind um, because our observation from a culture perspective, which I'm sure we'll get into, um, is that happy teams um, make better decisions. So that was the, the, the genesis of, of what we wanted third period to be all about. Any anything that playing hockey you think pr- gives you a skill set or a toughness or it's just you know there's plenty of people who talk about playing sports and but you know hockey is an interesting one. Anything about your hockey experiences that you that think thinks translates well to an investing career? Yes, I do. Um, I think when you're playing hockey, you often get hit off the you, you kind of get hit around. You uh, you get knocked off the puck. You get hit against the boards. Uh, sometimes in the middle of, of, of the ice, you'll get hit. It's called a blindsided hit. Um, gosh, I can think of being blindsided and investing in a number of different ways. I think the important thing is to get up, sometimes go to the, go to the boards and have a teammate come in and, and support you um, and take stock of what happened and to let your body recover. I think a lot of our work as investors is to try to synthesize information. And sometimes it takes time to do that. Um, uh, But it's a long game. And sometimes a shift can take 20 seconds, but it feels like two minutes. So I think a lot uh, about how to handle yourself when you, when I played hockey and how um, some of those behaviors translate and by the way, not just hockey, we can talk about other sports as well, tennis too. 
uh, a sport I played for, for a long time. But nonetheless, I think there are a lot of behaviors that actually correlate really nicely between the two, you know, sports playing and, and investing. Yeah, agreed on that one. So let's jump into the investing side a little bit. So uh, in your materials, you use the phrase uniquely supportive cultures when you describe the kind of companies you're looking to invest in. Can you talk about what that means and maybe give an example to make it a little more tangible for our listeners? Yep. Great question. So, so a culture, we think of a culture as being supportive when it supports a company's competitive advantages and growth strategy. And it's unique when other competitors don't possess it. So we spend a lot of time evaluating companies in three broad sectors, consumer, healthcare, and technology. In the consumer world, you could say Costco, for example, has a strong customer service and cooperative selling culture. We can talk about what that means. Um, in the world of technology, Shopify, for example, has a strong culture of innovation. Integris, which is a materials uh, company serving the semiconductor industry, has a very high reliability culture. Healthcare, um, our observation is Steris, which is a sterilization service company, has a strong safety culture. So. These are culture frameworks that my partner, Adam Grant, and I have developed, and we'll talk more about that, I'm sure. Um, there are very specific typologies that support businesses in certain industries in a very unique way. And what we found is when there's a very tight overlap, that can serve a company's growth strategy for a very long time, because oftentimes their competitors can't replicate that culture. Interesting. And are those would those be examples of things you own, those four that you mentioned? Yes. Got it. Okay. And so one of the hardest things about assessing cultures and understanding if they're truly additive to growth is a difficulty in validating what you're told by management. So what research do you perform to get a sense if the cultural values are embraced throughout an organization versus just their empty words that are put up in a sign in the lunchroom? Yep. Great question. The CEO at a conference is not going to give you much by the way of their culture. Uh, the CEO is the best salesperson in the whole business. And so that's a, that's a tough conversation to have. It tends not to be very fruitful. What we're trying to do instead is build what we would describe as a culture mosaic. And so what we're trying to get at really are what are the behaviors and values that animate this organization? That mosaic is built through conversations, many, many conversations over many, many years. And we're really trying to speak with anyone we can in the value chain of the companies that we're interested in, be that suppliers, customers, competitors, employees that work at the company, employees that have left the company on good terms, really anyone in the value chain that can give us, through their observations with the company, a set of behaviors that they've witnessed. And we have a list of proprietary questions that help us get at what this really looks like because it's hard to ask for this kind of thing. But when you can tease it out, and we think teasing it out is, is difficult to do, um, ideally what you're doing is you're coming up with a set of consistent behaviors. And when you start to get a set of consistent behaviors, that gives you a signal that there's actually a distinct culture that's that's occurring here. And then the question is, with the culture that you've observed, is it actually helpful for the company's growth strategy or not? Um, you know, much of corporate America is are, are companies that are very well managed. They have a distinct culture, frankly, whether they know it or not. But a lot of times those cultures actually don't serve the growth strategy of those businesses. And so we're really looking for that, that overlap. Um, Adam Grant is uh, my business partner in this effort. He's an organizational psychologist, a Wharton professor, um, and he helps uh, develop these culture frameworks that we can then apply to the culture data that we collect in these businesses. So you use the words framework and typology. Are there certain frameworks and, and, and or, or typologies of culture that work better with different kinds of organizations and different kinds of industries? Is, like, is there like a consumer culture typology that we should be thinking about or an industrial culture typology? Or um, is it not that generalizable? Is it not that specific to industries and it's more generalizable in general? So we actually think there's both. We think that there are frameworks that can be applied, that can be applied vertically to certain industries and 
especially the in industries of interest to us. But then there's also horizontal frameworks. And so, for example, the I mentioned Steris earlier. In our estimation, Steris has a very strong safety culture. If you go to visit Steris in Mentor, Ohio, before you can even enter the building, you have to watch a 15-minute safety video. Mm. Uh, once a week, the entire company virtually shuts down to talk about different safety topics. And in their, uh, in their plants, they've been outfitting their employees and investing in all sorts of different technology to make their emissions uh, safer. Um, so, so all of that creates an environment where they can do their best work, which is to help sterilize the medical products of their customers or uh, to create a safer uh, um, infrastructure environment within the hospital. Their competitors don't have that kind of orientation for a whole host of reasons. Um, what we found as a result is that this very clear culture, which Steris adopts, allows them to grow faster, be more profitable, generate higher returns on capital, and in general, be a, a more successful outperforming stock for the fund. Interesting. That, that observation of Steris having a strong safety culture, we've seen it in other businesses, but it tends to orient very nicely within the healthcare vertical. On the other hand, you can have a horizontal framework, uh, and we've talked a lot about uh, companies with learning culture. Underpinning a learning culture, which is different from say a performance culture, is the necessity of a company to build in psychological safety. And there's a whole topic of what that really means, but essentially it is an environment where employees are feel it safe to uh, to admit mistakes, identify mistakes, uh, uh, and grow from that. And uh, what we found is that, and this is a lot of the work that uh, Adam and his colleagues um, uh, have, have performed over the years, is that there are businesses that have this kind of psychological safety have been shown to generate higher returns on equity. And, um, and so that, that, that is an example, for example, of, of, a, of a horizontal kind of framework. And we think that studying them both and understanding how they intersect is really helpful. It's, it's nuanced work and it takes uh, many conversations over many years to do this correctly. But we think that that's where the real opportunity uh, and sort of the margin potential is for our own investing. Yeah. When I, when I guest lecture at UCLA, one of my, one of the, the topics I cover is culture and assessing culture and management. And the first thing I tell people is that, it's really hard. And if you're not going to be able to sit at the lunchroom for 30, you know, for 30 straight days, you're probably not going to get a sense of the culture. And so, you know, given that it is so hard, I'm interesting if I'm interested if you could kind of go if there's a way to like identify good cultures without doing that work beforehand. So, so for someone who's interested in investing in companies with cultures that aid with compounding are there financial or operational elements that are indic indicative of such a culture and can kind of be seen before you do that deep qualitative assessment? Like you kind of start with margins and returns or something like that, and then kind of backfill and see, is it culture? Is it market position? Is it, I don't know, something like that? Is it a, mon a monopoly, duopoly? Like what, how, how do you think about that going the other way and trying to pre-identify um, good cultures from a, just more from a financial or operational perspective? Yeah, I, I think that it's uh, I, I think that it's very hard to at the outset look at a company's financials and say this is culture. Um, a lot of a lot of the companies that we own, for example, in the fund, are depressing their current earnings and their returns in order to make long-term investments in their growth which is a function of their culture, but it wouldn't necessarily be obvious by looking at the financials. It really takes a long time to evaluate this and there has to be a joy in discovering it and really, and really, and really getting into it. What, this is something I've been introduced to from a very young age. And over time I've, 
lived in Israel and uh, was exposed to different cultures, was exposed to culture training through through my mom's job. And, and um, I, I think I've always been really interested in it. It's always been uh, just a fascinating project for me. And so naturally, that's kind of where I spend my time and, and really enjoy spending my time. Um, I don't think there's a shortcut for it. And I think that the ability to draw conclusions and create frameworks, I think that really is our secret sauce and how we can build the conviction to own these companies for an extremely long time, which is also a part of the strategy, which is very, uh, very important. I, I might even argue that the holding with conviction is more important actually than the signal that the culture uh, insights provide. And so they work together. Um, and I don't think because it doesn't show up neatly into a spreadsheet, I think it's under tracked. I think it's misunderstood by the market and that ultimately creates the opportunity for us. So most quality oriented investors are looking for structural competitive advantages that lead a company to have a true moat. In your experience, can culture be a durable competitive advantage, even given the degree to which you know people turn over and CEOs leave and founders founders retire? How do you how do you see the durability of culture versus something else like market structure or you know other other network effects notes modes that 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 occur? So we 100% believe that culture can be a durable competitive advantage, and I think it's it's a function of a mission-driven set of values that an organization possesses from, from the outset. So we own a company called West Pharmaceuticals, which is 100 years old. They make uh, stoppers for vials and plungers for syringes, basically the containment devices for vaccines. And they were started in order to supply World War II soldiers with penicillin. And they talk about how every vial has a patient's name on it. And, and so, you know, I think that employees will come and go. I think that uh, cultures can weaken and strengthen. But our observation is that cultures change more slowly than you, th you might think and have the ability to animate a company's growth for far longer than you would think. And I think that that really serves as the foundation for the duration of a company's growth because factories can be, you know, any kind of capital investment will ultimately be replicated by a competitor. Um, a process most likely will eventually be replicated as well. But I think the, the behaviors of an organization and, and the values of an organization can't really be replicated that easily. Even when the market knows about it, um, you know, the, the way in which a store associated at Costco will behave, which leads to a differentiated experience for the customer, that's been widely discussed for decades now. Um, Sam's Club has not been able to replicate it. Um, and, um, and we think that, you know, ultimately the, the culture will create a, a manager base over time that can seed their growth. So Costco could grow faster if it, if it wanted to, and probably many companies in their position might be tempted to grow faster, but actually a store manager base is required to, for example, open dozens of stores in China uh, and other parts of Asia. And so we think that over time, this very methodical and very thoughtful culture will animate their the financial performance of that business and enable its growth to endure for a lot longer than folks expect. And when we talk about durability, um, I mean, one thing that we see pretty consistently, especially among large companies, is M&A. And I'm interested to understand how you think about M&A in terms of the way that it can affect culture. I think there's certain there are certain companies like uh, I don't know like a constellation software right like has this very specific culture is actually kind of M and A is part of that 
But I think in other times, like you could see acquisitions and transformative or transformational M&A starting to erode a culture and starting to detract from that durability. How have you thought about it? And are there any patterns that you see where, hey, you know what? A lot of these companies that have these great cultures haven't done a lot of M&A. Or is it maybe the other way that, you know, the M&A is, you know, kind of additive to the to the enterprise? It's a great question. The kind of acquisition activity that that we like is when it brings on ancillary product technology or ancillary growth opportunities that may otherwise have not been available to the company or that it would have taken a very long time. Um, Amphenol would be a great example of this. Uh, Amphenol, based in Connecticut, makes interconnect sensors and other technology products that go into electrifying our, our lives. What Adam, the CEO at, at, at Amphenol likes to talk about is he's buying businesses that are very healthy in their, in their, in their, in their own right, that are animated by their own culture. And Amphenol doesn't acquire those businesses with arrogance to change their operation, to improve their operation. There are, several ways that it could improve their operations um, through growth capital, through advice, uh, maybe an upgrade of talent, but there's a trust that's built at the outset and, and, and frankly for years ahead of time as they're evaluating the acquisition most likely and getting to know that business, there's a trust that this company is motivated and knows how to run their business very well. And if there are opportunities to enhance the productivity of that business over time, then those opportunities will become available. Um, so it's patience, it's trust, and it's humility that they don't want to go in and presume they know how to run the business better than this other, this other operator does. And acquisitions have served Amphenol very well. It's been about a third of their growth. They've grown at a double digit rate for 20 odd years. And that shows us that they are very capable of building trust with their potential acquisition partners. And, and, and that's the kind of acquisition activity we like. We've also seen acquisitions like Integris, for example, acquired a business last year that uh, was perhaps not as aggressive in terms of development investment that was required by the customers. So Integris supplies filters and chemicals and gases for semiconductor makers to make the chips. And you can imagine if you're TSMC and you're ramping very aggressively, you want your partners to ramp aggressively as well. Not all the supplying partners will be capable or uh, uh, or oriented to move at that pace. And Integris has been very willing to make large investments in support of their customers. And you can see that with collaboration agreements they've had with customers. Um, and so Integris's acquisition of this business is a way to sort of accelerate the product roadmap for TSMC. So all that's to say, again, not trying to go in and slash a bunch of costs and make a, make it all better, but it's in service of their customers that they're doing this. And I would also talk about Constellation as well. We don't own it in the fund, although uh, it's a fabulous company uh, that I've, I've actually owned the stock personally since, since 2010. And, um, and there the acquisition program is as much to grow their collection of businesses as it is to give growth opportunities to the young managers that are now coming into a capital allocation role, right? So that's, that's a culture of serving employees and nudging them along their, their learning curves as, as knowledge workers and as uh, software acquirers in their own right. So those are three examples of, how acquisitions are very different from, you know, sort of the the, the typical you know, cutting cost and and driving an immediate return kind of way that a lot of companies tend to do their acquisitions. And a lot of successful investing comes from avoiding terrible mistakes, such as partnering with the wrong management teams. 
you developed a framework that you talked about called the, you know, um, that called the mosaic process um, that assesses company cultures. So I'm curious about what the hallmarks of an awful company culture are and any tips you have for sniffing those out. You know, we, uh, just as we, we don't short uh, stocks, I, I, I don't think that we would be particularly well-versed to give you insights on what would make an awful culture. I think, um, you know, frankly, I think a lot of companies are very well run. They just don't have that kind of tight overlap between a supportive culture uh, and, and the fundamental growth opportunity. Um, and, and, you know, when we observe that cultures can weaken over time, there are red flags to that. And I would say one red flag that we've, we've observed is, you know, if we say, for example, if we see two senior executives leaving around the same time, that's a red flag to us that, um, there's, that something might be happening here. That's, um, that's not constructive. Um, and we, we, I would say we have other red flags. Frankly, I think we consider those proprietary because, um, you know, they're, they're, they're signals to the movement of a culture and signals can be real and they can be imagined. But I think that we're, we're concerned with them, particularly as we're evaluating a new idea. If we see signals like that, that give us pause that would require a longer research process to to make sure that we're not acting on um you know on 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 something that's real um so i think that um yeah but but an awful culture i'm not i'm not even sure um i'm not i'm not even sure that we would be particularly attracted to even learn about it and you've mentioned Adam Grant a few times. I would love to understand how that relationship came about and then maybe a little more about what Adam's involvement brings to your process and analysis of companies. Yeah. So Adam, I got to know Adam uh, in business school. Uh, I was one of his um, early students. He had just started at the at the MBA program at Wharton. And we uh, got to know each other during those two years and then had stayed in touch over over my time when I was uh, in New York after graduation. And Adam was really intrigued that I was interested in thinking about how, how corporate culture can animate a company's growth strategy, how that could be observed over time in the stock market. And uh, Adam has uh, uh, a uh, strong ability and uh, he's very caring and generous with his time. And I think very curious about what his students uh are interested in building and to service students in that way. So it's been a wonderful relationship with Adam thus far. It will continue to grow over time. And he helps me think about, again, these culture frameworks. What are the components of the frameworks? How can they be applied? What sort of new studies are out there that inform how all of this can be understood? During COVID, this was a really dynamic time. And um, for example, I was really interested to know uh, in a distributed operating environment, what does the research say? How how quickly can companies cope and what tools will be required to serve them in a distributed environment? So that was one example of, um, you know, some, some insight that was really helpful and really timely. And I think that when you think about Adam's role and the, the insight that he brings to the fund, it also helps us build conviction around these investments for the long term, because they may be interesting insights that could lead to activity in the fund. But really what we're looking for are these sort of foundational investments that can serve as decades long uh, growth opportunities for our fund. And in order to have that, as much insight as we can bring on the culture side is, is really vital. Uh, and another person who's been influential in your career is, is Ron Barron from Barron Capital. I'd love to know what you learned about investing in growth companies from spending all that time uh, working around Ron. So Ron is wonderful. I, I would say that no one has taught me more about investing than Ron. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I can think of three things that uh, Ron has, has um, sort of uh, uh, 
taught me over the years and frankly still does. One is to, to be invested. I think that, you know, when I, when I joined Barron Capital in 2011, I had come from the background of a, a family office doing private, uh, well, private equity investing, but also in the public markets. And uh, I think there was a lot of concern about not overpaying or uh, for uh, managing position sizes and taking a position, you know, trimming the position and sort of be very conscious of the downside. And I think what Ron really impressed upon me with individual companies, but really for the market as a whole, is that these companies are, they advance in the market over time by innovation that's delivered either through the companies themselves or writ large by the market. And so sure, there will be periods of downside performance, uh, you know, underperformance. Um, but in order to capture that compounding effect, uh, you need to be invested. And on average, and over time, the market goes up because of these innovations that are delivered. And that was a really important insight, frankly, perhaps the most important insight. Um, the, the second uh, is uh, related, which is to, to be patient. Um, you know, there's always going to be disappointments with your portfolio companies. There's cycles, there's um, bad uh, decisions, bad acquisitions, mistakes happen, there's competitive responses. These are inevitable. And nonetheless, there's a requirement for compounding to occur to actually hold the businesses. And I think that knowing that special businesses are often capable of surprising to the upside and that it's unlikely that you can buy them back at cheaper prices is a, is a set of, um, it, it requires some humility that there will be times when you underperform, but that this is how it works and this is why it's hard. And this is why it's nonetheless important to hold these companies, assuming that these cycles that you diligence and you're investigating are in fact, cyclical and not secular in nature. And I think that's really the active work that we do is to try to understand if there are periods of underperformance, what is driving it and how confident are we that they are cyclical patches as opposed to secular pressures. And I would say the last thing that Ron taught me is to try to construct a portfolio with uncorrelated investment mm -hmm. ideas and especially those that don't have balance sheet risk. Uh, I, I think that you know, for the most part, we're invested in healthcare technology and consumer ideas. Um, and, uh, um, but there are other, uh, there are other ideas that might provide uh, some balancing over time to the portfolio. And so we're open-minded to uh, ideas outside of those sectors. We're unlikely to invest in financials and banks, energy companies, uh, deeply cyclical companies, but uh, we, we are mindful of the correlation of the portfolio. And I think that was a great uh, insight from Ron. And since you brought up portfolio construction, I'd love to dig a little deeper there. So you've identified a few sectors, which you mentioned. What about those fit within kind of your circle of competence, but also within the cultural frameworks and typologies that you think you know, give you, you know, give you the opportunity to outperform. Yeah, I, th I think the, the reason we're interested in those sectors is because our belief is that on average and over time, the per capita GDP globally uh, will continue to rise. And we think that as that occurs, there are a few sectors whose products and services will become in higher demand. So if you think about healthcare, insurance coverage will continue to grow, populations globally will continue to age, and Steris, which provides really hospital and healthcare infrastructure with respect to sterilizing uh, surgical tools, um, uh, sterilizing medical devices that go into a patient. Uh, we think that as procedures rise, 
uh, Steris is what I would call a picks and shovels operator to that whole industry. So we're not sure exactly whose hip or knee implant will be the most successful over the next five, 10 years, but it needs to be sterile before it can enter the body. And there's really two companies that offer that sterilization. And Steris is, in our estimation, um, the one that is architected with a set of values and behaviors that should allow them to provide a better service, more reliable, with less regulatory concern uh, and less uh, um, sort of negative externalities. We like that picks and shovels idea that animate a critical product or service. So I was talking about Integris before in chips. There's a lot of discussion now around the potential for AI and what that can do for our global productivity. Well, before AI can make our workflow more productive, there needs to be a chip that's built to deliver that kind of AI signal. And there are a few companies that manufacture chips largely, um, but there's really one or two materials company that serve those, those, those businesses. And so Integris is across its whole portfolio, roughly 60% market share across its 20 odd thousand products. But because of the close collaboration they've had with their customers and those significant investments I was talking about earlier, the win rates on their most impactful products are 80%. And so we think that these are wide mode businesses that serve their industries in a very critical manner. Um, but those competitive advantages are widening in many ways through their investments they make in their business and their culture. And in the case of Integris, they have what we would consider a high reliability culture. Um, they're obsessed with product quality, um, sort of reducing the complexity in a, in a, in a certain process step, right? That's kind of what they do for their customers. And so they architect, architect that, uh, internally. And so that would be another example of, um, of uh, a technology kind of picks and shovels company. And then on the consumer side, you know, as, as incomes grow, as wealth builds, um, there is a likelihood that there will be higher credit provisioning over time. And we have a company called Experian based in the UK that supplies uh, um, uh, data and decision tools for uh, providers of credit to, uh, to provide credit and to enable consumer activity and consumer behavior to occur. And so that's kind of a picks and shovels idea within consumer. Um, and so I, I think that's a great way to think about how we invest. We're targeting growth industries broadly. We are focused on those companies that are expanding their competitive advantage, animated by a unique corporate culture. And we're owning those businesses in a very patient manner for a long time for that compounding to occur. And you, you've talked a fair amount about conviction and when you're talking about cultures and ideas. So my guess is we both know some investors who run similar quality growth strategies who own fewer than 10 stocks, for example. So why not be ultra concentrated if you've identified a compounder and you have this conviction in the culture? I mean, like me, you kind of run in the 20 stock range. What What's your personal view of the right level of concentration for this strategy? I love that question. I think that the, the reality is that Henrik Bessenbeiner is an Arizona State Business School professor who was four or five years ago, came across this finding that 1% of all companies drive 99% of wealth creation. Uh, his, his observation was for data over the last 100 years. And so we do believe that there will be a small number of companies in our portfolios. Of course, we don't know which ones. Uh, but over time, they will drive really the, the, the total portfolio performance. I think because we don't know which ones, of course, we have our suspicions, but we are uh, humble in the sense that we don't, we're not exactly sure at this early stage, three and a half years into the fund, what those will be. So to some degree, our 23 stock construction, portfolio construction is, is a consequence of that, that we're mindful that things change over time. And therefore, we want to give some room for this portfolio to evolve. 
I think that it will, the portfolio will definitely become more concentrated over time as we continue to add to those companies that have surprised us to, uh, to the upside, either in their fundamental performance or in the strength and alignment of their culture. I think even as we add a few positions over time, the portfolio will continue to concentrate. And, and that's really a function of not selling our winners, mm. but rather letting them grow, even during periods where they may be slightly overvalued. Um, and the reason for that is because trimming successful investments feels good at the time, but there are some assumptions that underlie that activity that we don't think are particularly correct. One is that we could buy them back at cheaper prices. We don't think that that's necessarily the case. These are such unique businesses. They don't often have a one-to-one -one replacement. They're not average companies that can be swapped in and out. And I think knowing what we do about how they're run, there's a lot of investment that's happening in the income statements of these businesses that will have a payoff. Um, some of that's acquisitions, but some of it is just internal projects. And so, you know, when we analyze a company and we're trying to come up with normalized earnings, we're not just looking at their operating expenses and saying, you know, these are the cost of doing business. There's a meaningful portion of a lot of the corporate spend that's growth oriented. And, and I think a lot of, a lot of times people don't, don't quite understand that they're not going into that kind of nuanced work. And so that's how we think about, you know, the, the scarcity of these businesses and the fact that the compounding is magical and exponential, but it takes time to, to play out. And it, it behooves us to act with a lot of patience. Again, the activity is around validating the performance of the business and making sure we understand how these companies are investing their resources and what the likely payoff is of those investments. And you mentioned valuation a couple of times in that response. So I'm curious about your process for valuing companies, if that's changed over time and, and what is, you know, what is the third period kind of like go to valuation? Is it DCF? Is it normalized earnings? Just give us a little sense of, of, of how you think about determining intrinsic value. Yeah. And I think, I think I would even say we're trying to approximate what we think is intrinsic value relative to the price we're paying today. So in every investment, of course, we're paying a price that we believe is far lower than the intrinsic value of the business. We think there's probably an out, you know, a, um, a range of what that intrinsic value might look like. I think we have learned to avoid businesses that are excessively valued. So it helps us to, at the outset, it helps us to avoid those companies. And, and even those companies that are over earning due to some event. And I think COVID, COVID was challenging in that respect because in hindsight, several of our companies were earning uh, in ways that we didn't fully appreciate at the time. So we own bioprocessing companies leaders in uh, the bioprocessing industry that help pharmaceutical companies and biologics manufacture drugs. And they were, of course, getting orders for COVID-related vaccines, but they were also getting orders from customers that were concerned about the health of the supply chain and they wanted to have safety stock. Mm -hmm. And so now, you know, that's starting to unwind. Again, that's okay. We've determined that it's a cyclical phenomenon as opposed to a secular issue. Um, but we think about the um, we think about the demand environment and approximating normalized demand as we're thinking about valuation. The other thing we think about with valuation is we are willing to pay a premium for a company that we think has a greater earnings duration. So we're trying to find businesses that we think can grow faster than the market expects they will grow over the medium term. 
especially if they have a very unique corporate culture that we think is aligned to that growth strategy, we're willing to pay a premium. But knowing that we've paid or potentially have paid a premium, we're very conscious of position sizing within the portfolio. Um, and uh, we were also mitigating that risk to some degree by holding these businesses for a long time, because a business you think is earning a dollar of earnings today actually might be earning a dollar 20 next year and a dollar 40 the year after. And so in hindsight, paying a modest premium was actually totally reasonable. So I think we're, we're again, to sort of get back to your question, I think we're trying to understand what is the normalized earnings power of this business based upon the investment capacity that's happening in light of a demand scenario that um, we think is healthy and normal uh, and we're avoiding excessively valued businesses. And as you think about the cultural frameworks that impact and or kind of apply to your qualitative assessment, how, if at all, do you overlay that cultural assessment to the valuation does that are you willing to pay a higher multiple for a better culture is it about you know kind of getting back to the duration of the of the competitive advantage that the company can exemplify what how does that work for you i think we're we're willing to pay a premium for a culture overlap that for which we have higher conviction so i think it, it probably makes sense to analyze this in the case of a real world example. So Steris, for example, um, I think the historical, say the five-year trailing average multiple for Steris, the market, I think, says it's 25 times or something to that effect. We would say, actually, if you look at the capacity, the investment capacity that's occurring in the business, it's really more like 20 to 21 times, which is a premium to the 17 times earnings multiple for the broader market. But given given the fact that Steris has a business that has 50 plus percent market share serving virtually all procedural environments, there was, a, there was a procedure count that was happening. I think there's about 75 million healthcare procedures that occur every year in U.S. hospitals. During COVID, seniors weren't going to the hospital for elective procedures. They were justifiably scared about COVID. And even it took a few years after to really get folks comfortable with uh, uh, with the ability to be safe in a, in, a, in a hospital environment and to go back. Now, you you can delay a hip or a knee trans, uh, implant for a while, um, but ultimately you need to have one and in order for people to actually live life. And so we're starting to see now seniors coming back to the hospitals, the procedure count is rising, and that directly impacts Steris's um, operating performance. And so, you know, we're comfortable that they're not over earning right now. Um, we're willing to pay a modest premium to the market based upon a very tight overlap of culture. And it already isn't as expensive as you think it is because there is some investment capacity that's occurring into their earning, you know, that's occurring with their earnings that the market isn't giving them credit for. And so that's kind of how we think about, you know, paying 20, 21 times normalized earnings for a business that can grow double digits for a very long time. Um, uh, feels like the right place for us. And Steris is a top five position for, for the fund. And one of the things that stood out to me about your experience at Barron was that you spent a lot of time in emerging markets. I'm curious how you, you know, expect uh emerging markets or global markets not kind of like non-us markets we talked about aside from experience a lot of us companies how do you how do you expect those companies to play in the portfolio going forward yeah we love global growth companies we think that if you're selling globally there's fewer constraints to your growth over time and again we're trying to find these businesses that we can own in the fund for 30 40 50 years um what we learned as global or emerging market investors at Barron is that the, the sort of sovereign risks of a lot of these countries are real. Um, they are, um, there are regulatory changes. There are a lot, a lot of their prospects can change with, uh, the oil markets and the oil prices. Um, so 
we, on the one hand, want to be exposed to the growth and the purchasing power of these consumers. But at the same time, we want to shield our investors from the jurisdictional risks, these sovereign risks that are um, are, are uh, quite large and can last for a very long time. And so, for example, so we own LVMH, which uh, is uh, uh, a purveyor of very unique and quality items for the, the growing middle class. We love the exposure to the Chinese consumer, for example, that owning LVMH offers without the jurisdictional risk of owning a local, a locally listed Chinese company, for example. Or you could say the, say the same thing about a Brazilian consumer. Uh, certainly you could say the same thing about a Russian consumer. So we, we like being exposed to the rising purchasing power in these countries. Um, and we've learned to expose the fund uh, to these places, but shielding our investors from those risks. And when you, you mentioned when you were talking before that you spent some time living in Israel when you were a kid, I'm interested in how you think that experience benefits you as someone who now invests globally. I think about it all the time because it was a really profound experience for myself, for my family. I was there, my mom, I mentioned, were from uh, from Minnesota. So she worked at 3M for, I guess it was nearly 30 years. She was asked by the 3M board to start a subsidiary at the company in Tel Aviv. So we moved when I was uh, starting, I guess it was eighth, ninth and 10th grade. So those were the three years that I was there. And I was in a local Hebrew speaking public school. And that was uh, uh, just a wonderful experience to know, uh, to, to become confronted with the reality that there are so many different ways to live. There are different people out there. There are different behaviors. Uh, and I think what it taught me was to be an observer and to, uh, to to watch and to learn and to be respectful of cultural differences. And I loved hearing at the dinner table all of the conversations that my mom and my dad had around uh, being a part of a multinational organization. Her bosses were in Europe. They were managing businesses that spanned uh, many different countries. And I was always very interested in the behavioral observations and how it actually impacted the way in which they did business. And I think the study of what makes these cultures unique, um, I'm, I'm especially sensitive to that. And so we own a company called Audion, for example, so payment processing software company. They, it's a horizontal software business. So they're selling their service globally. And in order to sell a global service, they are architected with many different cultures. They're a Dutch, uh, sort of headquarters, but they are cognizant of all of the different subcultures within their organization. And they have rules and behaviors around uh, uh, respecting those, those differences. So, you know, they wouldn't be sending internal emails to ask someone a question, for example, there would be a very strong expectation. You'd pick up the phone and you make a phone call and they're, they're aware of the directness of their touch culture. Um, and, by shedding light on it and by creating a very uh, uh, conscious set of behaviors, they are uh, giving it a lot of respect. And so I think I, I think that as a long-term investor, owning global growth businesses is a fabulous way to do that. And the respect for these differences doesn't just bubble up naturally. You really need to be aware of it and you need to build in behaviors that can facilitate it. What's really intriguing to me about the strategy, and because you're kind of preaching to the choir, given the market cap spectrum that I focus on, but aside from Costco, uh, a lot of the companies you've talked about are not household names. Why have you decided to focus on, I guess, maybe what you call mid cap companies versus larger companies that are, you know, kind of more household S&P 500 kind of names? Yeah, I mean, I think we're looking for a business with a proven value proposition of stable unit economics that are very attractive to the customer uh, that can scale globally. And we're looking for evidence that that's already begun, but there are hopefully decades for it to continue to flourish. Graco would be a great example. This is a Minnesota company I've followed for a very long time and it's a global business. It's a 15 billion market cap rough justice. And 
their product technology is available across so many different ancillary growth markets and their relationships with their distributors across hundreds of countries is really unique. And of course, they're animated by a culture that we think is very unique as well. Um, and, and we like that because we think that that's very durable growth. And uh, we're really in the business of trying to find these companies that can compound at above average rates for, for a very long time. But we need to be convinced that the unit economics are attractive enough for that actually to occur without inviting a whole lot of competition. And in order for us to get conviction around that, it really needs to be in that kind of 10 to 15 billion market cap, um, sometimes earlier, but um, but that feels like a good sweet spot for us. And you talked about holding companies for a long time. And um, I, my guess is that takes what you discussed as patience and continued diligence and I, within that framework, I like the idea that a stock can be a mentor for a person. Are there any companies that you've invested in during your career that have taught you the power of compounding that you, you know, have taught you the lesson of, of that, you know, great businesses have to be held even through cyclical issues. I'd love an example of that kind of exemplifies what you're doing um, at third period now. Yeah, I, I have learned so much from Constellation Software, which is a company you alluded to earlier. And as I said, we don't own it in the fund. I hope to one day own it in the fund. I bought the company in business school. So I guess it was 2010. And I have studied the business over a long period of time. And I've gotten to know Mark and, and the folks there very well. Um, and, you know, what, what I've come to observe from Constellation is there is a moat around a business and then there's a moat around a culture. And Constellation Software is a series of small vertical market software businesses across a range of different sectors. There have been times when I thought the moat around those individual businesses was wide. And then there are other times when I thought maybe it's not as wide as I thought. Mm -hmm. um, Similarly, there have been times when I thought that the moat around their culture was wide and other times when I thought, hey, I see people leaving for private equity and I see, you know, and exactly how does this work? How does this transfer of knowledge work and the dissemination of knowledge? And so there's question marks that occur for any investment. The active work that we do and where we really get paid is to be constantly asking the fundamental business questions to assess how are they doing and how are they likely to continue doing given what we know today. And the same, by the way, on the culture side, so that when these inevitable hiccups occur, we can make the right assessment that they're cyclical issues as opposed to secular changes in the, in the underlying investment thesis. It's a daily drumbeat of work that allows us to have conviction in pivotal moments. Uh, and sometimes that means we're continuing to hold the position and sometimes it means we can add to it. But I think that because I've had question marks over the years with respect to Constellation, yet seen the business continue to compound capital at very attractive rates, even as they've grown, um, it's been a wonderful study in how compounding can work. Uh, because the business that we see today is actually not drastically different from what we saw in 2006 when they went public. They're just more distributed and they've learned a lot more around how to architect themselves to deliver growth and to deliver learning opportunities for their, for their people. And we've talked a lot about philosophy. We've talked about process. We've talked about individual ideas I want to zoom out for a moment and talk about the business of investment management and and your views for for how to have what uh, third period is going to look like. So maybe talk a little bit about your vision for if I picked an arbitrary number seven years from now, what do you what would you like this business to be for you? Yeah. So in addition to Adam, um, 
you know, I'd, I'd like to bring on thought partners uh, on the research side, uh, as well as business development. I think on the research side, of course, uncovering new ideas, but also to really be a strong devil's advocate for the for the portfolio, given the biases that are inherent in how we've held them for a long time. And so I think that'll definitely be um, important. I think on the business development side, our commitment is to lower our fees as we raise assets. And so, you know, it, it actually, it's worth mentioning, I started third period because I felt like a lot of the investment uh, acumen and experience that I had learned as a young child, watching my mom build her career at 3M and investing in 3M SOC. Um, other folks didn't have that. It, it wasn't available. And I felt like there were ways to access financial products, investment products, but um, I, I don't want to build wealth as, as an owner of a GP. I want to own, I want to build wealth alongside the wealth compounding that occurs for my, for my clients. And so sort of building that as a gift to clients over time through lower fees is something that I feel is very important. I also spend time, uh, you mentioned UCLA er earlier. I, I'm a volunteer in the Reardon program, which is giving a lot of the stock market knowledge to folks that come from underserved communities. And, and that educational element is also very important. Um, I, I also see an, an, an opportunity over time, potentially, hopefully over seven years to convert the fund um, into perhaps a mutual fund structure, which would give uh, investors, uh, both in principle and in, in size, an access opportunity to the fund that they may not have now, um, as the requirement is to be an accredited investor, for example. So I see all sorts of ways for the product to get stronger, uh, for the product to become less expensive and more accessible over time as we continue to grow. And as you're thinking about business development in the short run, um, an institutional investor walks into your office and says, this is interesting. How are you, how are you positioning this? Is it, is it just kind of, you know, mid cap growth? Is it, you know, what, what is, what is the differentiation that you try to communicate when, when you're, um, when you're talking to people about it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a global growth equity vehicle where we're fully invested in uh, growth businesses with unique competitive advantage, widening those advantages with a unique and supportive corporate culture. And I think our observation is that culture is the most consequential asset to drive performance, but it's the most misunderstood. And that's the opportunity is to find these really special businesses where culture is an incredible advantage that's not well understood because it doesn't show up neatly in a spreadsheet. It doesn't show up neatly in a financial statement. Um, it is incredibly valuable, yet hard to uh, hard to identify at the outset. And, you know, we were friends with Peter Kaufman, who runs Glen Air out here in California. And Peter says, where there's mystery, there's margin. And we believe that's true. The These companies are known today, perhaps, to be high quality, and to be successful, um, but we we nonetheless think that the duration that is available to them is far more attractive than people realize. And and so that so there's that sort of strategy component around culture. And then I think there's a behavioral component here too, which is um, we resist the temptation to trade and to to trim our winners because of the mathematical properties of compounding. And that means that there are times when, you know, there's underperformance, when, you know, folks are selling a company that's doubled or tripled. We're looking for, you know, we need six and a half doubles, right? That gets you to a hundred baggers. So that's really what we're looking to build over time. And we think that we need a, a really unique set of assets. We, we need a unique culture. And then of course we need time and, active vigilance to make sure that this business is performing to our expectations. Um, but, but if it is, then it behooves us to be patient. 
Well, Aaron, we traditionally close with the question of what's most misunderstood or underappreciated about your opportunities, but I think you, I think you covered that really perfectly. So uh, with that, uh, thank you so much for being on Compounders. This was a great discussion and we're going to be following third period in your career very closely over the years. I appreciate that. I appreciate the opportunity to come on. If, if anyone is interested to learn more, um, please reach out. Hopefully there's a way to connect uh, in, the, in the search note, uh, in the show notes. And um, I, I hope to connect with you. And Ben, thank you very much. Yeah, we're, we'll, we'll definitely put the Aaron's uh, website on the in the show notes. So thank you, Aaron. We'll talk soon. Okay. Bye now. For full disclosure, Third Period Capital is a shareholder of Amphenol and Graco. For full disclosure, I do not own any of the securities discussed in this podcast, including Shopify, Integris, Steris, West Pharma, Constellation Software, Experian, Adyen, Costco, or Graco.